Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And unfortunately, we're still without our regular third host, Matthew Sanderson, who's recuperating. I spoke to him yesterday on the telephone and he is sounding like himself again and hopefully he'll be back on the show before too long. But today we have the honour of being joined by podcaster, author, illustrator, this is all one person, folks, filmmaker, actor, joker, smoker, midnight toker, it's the one and only Chris Lackey. Oh, what? Huh? I thought you were talking about somebody <laughs> exciting there. That sounded great, that intro. I was like, who's this guy? I know, right? <laughs> it's just me. Ah, oh, what a letdown. How's it going, everybody? I was going to say, in case people don't know, Chris is the uh, co-host of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I am, as well as co-host of the podcast Rachel Watches Star Trek, which I do with my wife. We talk about Star Trek because she's never watched it before. Well, we just passed our 200th episode, so she she's seen it now. When we started, she had never watched Star Trek. And, wow. Uh, it's been an interesting ride with her. She's a lot of fun, my Yorkshire lass. I had great fun listening to <laughs> some of her opinions on uh, the original series. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. You must be deep into TNG now. We are. Season four, we wow. just started. We passed our... 200th episode oh man we just did legacy which is the 80th episode of tng which beats the milestone of the original series yeah. because it's the 80th episode and the original series only got to 79 oh, oh wow tangent <laughs> sorry we're here to talk about cthulhu <laughs> we are we haven't even mentioned this that this episode we're continuing our series on the deities of the cthulhu mythos with the dead dreamer himself as chris said cthulhu before we get into all that eldritch stuff, however, what is going on? Well, we're working on issue nine of our fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome, which is due for release at the end of June this year, 2022. This is a reward for all our wonderful Patreon backers, and we'd like to thank everyone who has sent us a contribution, and we've received some wonderful articles and artwork. Apparently there have been aliens on how we roll, Scott. Yes, We've been playing the Chariot of the Gods scenario on How We Roll with John Hook running it, and it's been absolutely marvellous so far. The first, I think, three or four episodes are out at this stage on the main How We Roll feed, with more stuff coming out on the Patreon ahead of time. And yeah, it's good, nasty alien stuff with lots of weird xenomorphic horrors and mm. backstabbing and corporate shenanigans and all the stuff that made the films great so yeah obviously i'm a bit biased but if you like alien i do recommend listening to it and now on to our main topic mythos deities great cthulhu we have 
talked about a number of the other deities of the Cthulhu mythos before, and we've also talked about the story of the Call of Cthulhu in episodes 109 and 110. And we did our episode on the pop culturization of Cthulhu back in episode 50. But we figured it was about time, particularly with Chris joining us and his new book on the cults of Cthulhu having just come out, that it was time that we went back and actually did a proper discussion of Cthulhu. So question one, Chris, mm. how do we actually pronounce C-T-H-U-L-H-U? Well, that's the trick, really, because humans weren't meant to speak the name Cthulhu. It's impossible. We don't have the facilities, faculties, the anatomy to make it work, but we can approximate it. And I believe there's a quote from Lovecraft. The first syllable pronounced gutturally and very thickly. The U is about like that in full. And the first syllable is not unlike. I love that. Not unlike. Which means like. (laughs) (laughs) Clull. In sound, hence the H represents the guttural thickness. So maybe. Basically, however long we spend on this topic, afterwards, we're just going to say Cthulhu. Yeah. We are, yeah. Lovecraft himself also came up with a number of variants in his other stories. Probably the simplest one is from The Bound, where he just referred to him as Tulu, mm. who was imprisoned in the half-cosmic city Relics. Relics, I don't know, it sounds like some brand from the 1950s. Maybe an indigestion remedy. I think it's the company my son works for. <laughs> I was thinking it was a, a kind of shaver. <laughs> the new Relics for women. Mm, smooth. Yeah. You could advertise that, Chris, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And there was also, again, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this one, Cthulhu? No. Cthulhu? Yeah, that's probably better. From Yarelier, which sounds like a very upbeat version of (laughs) Relier, taken from The Electric Executioner. There's a lovely bit in that film about Lovecraft that came out about 15, 20 years ago. Is it called Out of Time, I think? Uh, Out of Mind. Out of Mind. Oh, right. And there's there's a scene of Lovecraft in the woods just speaking the name Cthulhu to himself, you know, just sounding it out as he was out there in the woods and there's nobody else around. And you can just imagine him actually doing that because he did go out and write in the outdoors quite a lot. Yeah, and that was Christopher Heidel playing Lovecraft, and I think he's by far the best Lovecraft we've seen on screen. I mean, he looks a bit like Lovecraft, but there was just something about his performance. I I really love that film. Yeah, it's great. I saw that years ago. I think it came out on the co- mm-hmm. collection from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Yeah. It's really good, really thoughtful and sensitive, surprisingly. And weird, really and weird. weird. <laughs> yeah. Now he gets his first appearance... Cthulhu. In Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu, written in 1926, almost 100 years ago, and first published February 1928 in Weird Tales. So Lovecraft credited the origins of Cthulhu to a dream that he'd had in 1920, which he recorded in his commonplace book as a potential story idea later. And in it, he'd sculpted this bas-relief of a figure 
that he then, for some reason, took to a museum curator who started off by laughing at him, sort of saying, oh, this is too modern, and then realised it was something really ancient and terrible. And so, of course, this then became the bar relief in the story made by Wilcox. S.T. Joshi suggests that Lovecraft was influenced by Guy de Maupassant's short story, The Horla. It's a good one. We covered that on our show. Mm in which the protagonist is slowly driven mad by an invisible alien entity which invades his dreams. And of course, Arthur Mackin's story, the novel of Black Seal, which uses a similar structure of a horrible revelation pieced together from disassociated knowledge. Yeah, I reread The Horror the other day, which I hadn't read for, oh gosh, something like 30 years. And I was pleased with how creepy that story still is Mm. that slow encroachment of madness and this invisible presence in the house and i guess the connection to cthulhu is the way that this presence seems to act on dreams that it it manifests within the protagonist's sleeping mind Mm. and sort of reshapes him drives into madness controls him and yeah you can definitely see echoes of cthulhu in that yeah Another possible influence is The Kraken by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which is pointed out by Robert M. Price, this concept of a huge octopoid monstrosity sleeping at the bottom of the sea. I mean, that sounds kind of familiar. It does, yeah. And it's awakening, presaging some kind of apocalypse, if I remember correctly. I meant to reread that poem before this and I forgot. You can't do it all. You're just one man. <laughs> Oh, give or take. (laughs) What? (laughs) That raises even further questions. (laughs) In The Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu himself is described as being one of the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those old ones were gone now inside the earth and under the sea, but their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men, who formed a cult which had never died, hidden in the distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the mighty city of Rillier under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Some day he would call when the stars were ready, and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. So, Chris, Mm. you are our authority here. Is Cthulhu A, a great old one, B, a god or deity, or or C, something else entirely? Or a priest? All of the above. All of them. (laughs) Well, yeah, the reference in the story, I mean, all they really have is this story from Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Obviously, other authors have extrapolated on this. Well, this story, and then there's a bit of a reference to it in At the Mountains of Madness with the Elder Things. Mm -hmm. So we could kind of get this idea of of what happened in this ancient time. But I would say Cthulhu is a great old one as humans see great old ones, but he's not one of the the gods above, you know, like the Azazoths or the Yogg-Sothoths, those guys are gods compared to Cthulhu in the grand scheme of things. Whereas Cthulhu, I think, has kind of a finite or a, a limited power. Obviously, he's trapped on Earth, so he's not all-powerful, whereas something like Yogg-Sothoth is all of time and space, all that is, all that was, and all that will be kind of thing. They do make mention in Call of Cthulhu of other creatures 
of Cthulhu's race and that he is mm. a high priest of this race. So being a high priest maybe grants him more abilities and powers than his brethren. And he is in a position of power and control. And who knows how much more that is than the other mm. Cthulhu creatures. In the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, we've got the um, Star Spawn of Cthulhu. The way that the game sort of paints that is that those creatures are the things that Cthulhu is the high priest of. Right? Mm. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're huge, monstrous things akin to the scale of Cthulhu, I would have said. Yeah, but in the story and in that little passage we just read, mm -hmm. there was also the mention that the other great old ones had sort of done what Cthulhu had done and, and died and gone into the earth and the hidden places and so on. That Cthulhu isn't the only one which this has happened to. And that they then, beyond death, broadcast their dreams, their dreams shape minds and touch people in hideous, maddening ways. Mm. That seems to imply that Cthulhu is just one of many who are on Earth, sort of these, these hidden psychic landmines just yeah. waiting to be uncovered. And this quote, I believe, is from... Castro. This is Castro telling us what yes. what he believes Cthulhu is. Mm. So we're we're getting this from a human perspective here. Yeah, and he could be completely wrong as to how it works because this is just how he sees it and what he thinks he's going to get out of it. Because the human cult is very important in his idea of the universe. That Cthulhu needs this human cult, and we're really important, and we do these things for Cthulhu. And if it wasn't for us, Cthulhu wouldn't be able to rise again and when the stars are right and, and that sounds like a very human-centric viewpoint yeah speaking of which i mean obviously we've got Durlis interpretation then that follows which we'll get into a bit more later in the episode this whole idea that cthulhu has been deliberately imprisoned by the older gods but that doesn't necessarily seem to jibe with what we see in the story i don't know about you my interpretation here is that it's almost like a natural cycle this death and rebirth this going into the earth and then awakening when the stars are right that it's not a punishment or an imprisonment that is just something that happens i was thinking of lungfish which you get in parts of south america and africa mm. these creatures that basically live in water they like fish except they have rudimentary lungs as well but during certain cycles when there's droughts they burrow into the mud and the mud can absolutely bake solid at this stage there's mm. no water around and they basically sleep within the mud breathing there going into a kind of hibernation and then when the rains come and the mud dissolves again they swim out and they behave like fish i can sort of see that being a bit like cthulhu here yeah for sure it's really interesting because all this stuff is so vague and it leaves a mm. lot of room for interpretation it was kind of nice when i got the job to write the book the cult of cthulhu with mike i go you know mike there really isn't much here and he goes that's fine just go with it just explore mm. take whatever you can and, and and make it interesting and i i tried my best we'll see <laughs> if it's interesting or not. But the idea, too, that Cthulhu is imprisoned is interesting. In At the Mountains of Madness, they talk about how the the old ones, which are the elder things in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, how they were the rulers of the earth, and then Cthulhu and his kin came out of the stars and drove them into the seas. 
and then mm. they ruled on the land. Cthulhu's kind ruled on the land for millennia, and then something happened. They don't know what happened, but Relay and all these big cities that these Starspawn had were either destroyed or fell into the sea. And that's all we get you know, from Lovecraft himself. Obviously, there's many yeah. different authors that have given their two bits, their hot takes on it. Mm. <laughs> and we may come to some of those later. Yeah! <laughs> but that whole cycle thing of like rising and falling, we do see that in the story mm. as really a rises briefly and Cthulhu's dreams at that time kind of spread out around the world mm. and he's able to touch people like Wilcox and influence him, you know, driving him to some kind of artistic madness and acts of religious fervor or brutality or so on that would take place around the world as Cthulhu surfaces. One of the more uncomfortable things in the story of The Call of Cthulhu, though, is Lovecraft's very distinct racial divisions along how the dreams of Cthulhu affect people. It does seem to be that if you're a white person living in Providence, Cthulhu is going to inspire you to make art. Uh -huh. If you're not white, then you're going to be driven to acts of barbarous insanity and butchery. Yeah. Hmm. Obviously, I think that's something that in the role-playing game we want to get away from pretty sharpish, and there is absolutely no reason to cleave to that interpretation of things mm. at all. Yes, yeah. I mean, it could easily be shifted to just say anybody that's artistic, regardless mm. of racial divides, yeah. would be inspired to do artwork or express themselves. But people that are violent or people that have had trauma that they're trying to process mm. it'll affect them adversely even though they are more sensitive people you know psychically aware of what's going on i don't think it takes too much work for sensitive people that are writing these games to circumvent the ugly racist stuff that lovecraft had in there yeah totally and almost more effective to have the people who you might think are more prone to violence to actually turn to making sensitive works of art and the reverse you know yeah. Uh, not mm. along racial lines, but along... Lines of personality, yeah. That could be quite an interesting hook, couldn't it? That, say, in a prison or even a psychiatric unit for violent offenders, that there is a sudden outbreak of artistic creativity mm. that the patients actually become quieter and start focusing their energies into creation rather than into psychosis or destruction. That in its own way, could be maybe not disturbing, but puzzling and weird. Oh, yeah. To have somebody that would be violent and that they would have to worry about or be concerned, changing their behavior, doing a 180 and all of a sudden being really focused and quiet and painting a detailed mural on their prison wall, mm. that's unsettling because they're behaving in ways that we don't understand and that creeps me out. Another thing we see in this story mentioned, I think at least a couple of times, is non-Euclidean geometry and how we can actually get our heads around what that is. I mean, certainly when I first read it, I'm still not sure I really understand what that phrase means. When I first read it, it was just some words that sounded cool. And that was enough, really. Yeah. And if I'm honest, it still really is. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this whole thing of weird angles and strange geometry, can we actually make use of that in our games? Yeah, for sure. I love non-Euclidean geometry. I, I use it mostly for spatial engineering, sort of. Uh, so you would use it, let's say, like I would say the TARDIS uses non-Euclidean mm. 
engineering. You know, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So anything like that uses non-Euclidean geometry in its architecture or places maybe a gate spell would actually be a place that's just built in a way that takes you by moving in our space, you're able to move into a fifth or sixth dimension and then out of it again to effectively teleport or, or move around or go into a whole other realm or another world, a spirit world. There's all types of interesting things you can do with those types of structures, or at least I have. Mm. Well, and also I think that if Cthulhu himself is living somewhere that seems to exist in more dimensions than just R3, then that perhaps implies that he himself exists in multiple dimensions. If you think of him as being a sort of three-dimensional cross-section of a much larger multi-dimensional structure in our world, then that gives you all sorts of scope to change his presentation as we perhaps see different aspects of him as he moves through three-dimensional space in different ways, that perhaps there are going to be representations of him that are smaller or look completely different or even larger that are almost completely unrecognizable just because we're seeing different parts of this monstrous whole. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting in the story itself because he squeezes out of that opening, mm. so he's kind of gelatinous. But he's got mass because he picks dudes up and eats them. But then he mm -hmm. pops and then he's just gas inside, which doesn't really make any sense because to have all this mass and power and then he reforms again after he pops. So mm -hmm. what the heck is he made of? What is the material that's used to construct? Is it organic or is it something we've never ever seen before? or could never understand because it's beyond us. And like you said, Scott, maybe it it exists in multiple dimensions. And what we're seeing is this kind of crossroads of these multiple dimensions mm -hmm. in this manifestation. Or it could be human perception of Cthulhu as well. And that's just how we see him. And that's not really at all what he looks like. If you attempted to take a photograph of Cthulhu, Johansson maybe had a camera, took a picture, it wouldn't turn out as anything, or it would turn out as some other thing that we couldn't, you know, be distorted. Who knows? It's fun to think about this stuff. Mm. Actually, that's a really good point, because if we think of Cthulhu as being this sort of psychic emanator broadcasting his dreams, well, that could even mean that the manifestation that the crew of the Alert saw isn't actually a physical thing, that this is, again, some sort of psychic construct that they encountered, yeah. and there maybe isn't even a physical form there. Well, he does run his boat into it, though, right? So there's something there that to impact. These are still perceptions. Mm. And it pops. It goes right through him. Mm. So when it hits him, the boat's still intact. And you would think if you're running a boat into a 100-foot tall thing that there would be some mm. damage to the boat, but there doesn't seem to be. So maybe it's not really as Johansson perceived it or the cultists perceive it. And that's just their human interpretation. Now, as well as non-Euclidean geometry, which is a great phrase, we also have another great poetic couplet from Abdul Alhazred, the author of the Necronomicon, no less. That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons, even death may die. It sounds really cool. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but, you know. Neither am I. 
<laughs> it also echoes nicely with the chant from the cultists as well, which translates as, in his house in Relier, dead Cthulhu lies dreaming. Mm. So this whole idea of him being dead but dreaming. Are we meant to take this idea of him being dead literally? Or is this just, again, you know, human limitations of, of understanding? It's a choice to say, even death may die. That is not dead. It doesn't mm. say he's sleeping. Because usually one one dreams, they sleep. So why is he dead and still dreaming? And how does that work? And what does that mean exactly? Or is it that juxtaposition what is supposed to unnerve us and make us feel like it is the other? Mm. That it's one thing, but it's also another thing. And those two things can't normally exist together. You can't be dead and dream. But mm. it is. Yeah, and the whole concept of was strange eons, even death may die, I guess is probably Lovecraft's sort of mischievously blasphemous take on Christian theology and the idea of Christ promising the conquering of death, the transcendence of death, and this mm. is almost like you know, a perversion of that. Yeah, I remember Castro saying about what he wanted to get out of it, which I always thought this was really interesting. The secret priest would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of earth. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves. And all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom, which is sort of interesting because you think holocaust means that it would be all destroyed, but it says a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom, which I think mm. a lot of people don't think about too often when they're thinking about these, these cults. And it's to me very interesting that these cultists see these these horrible monsters as saviors. They're not all about let's kill everyone and that's it. Mm. It's like, no, no, we're going to, we'll kill some people. Sure. That's fun because that's power and we can enjoy that because reveling in joy is one of the things that these people really want, but they're also going to be taught new ways to revel and to live and experience. And that's something I really took to heart when I wrote the cults of Cthulhu that idea of why are people doing this? Why would you worship mm. Cthulhu? What are you going to get out of it? You know, just being a nihilist isn't interesting. You know, like, so yeah, you want to kill yourself or you want to kill everybody. That's pretty boring. Like, there's got to be more to it than that. And I think that those few lines there really give us insight into what the cultist would want. Well, also that whole idea of it then being an explosion of the destructive impulse, the impulse to murder and burn and mm. destroy, is perhaps, again, a reflection of the kinds of people who are drawn to this. If, again, we think back to the idea of Cthulhu's dreams, inspiring some people to artistic creation, some people to religious fervor or mystical fervor, mm -hmm. and some people to destruction, then maybe when the great old ones return, 
It's only the people who are drawn to the destruction who, in their ecstasy, this liberation, will then become wild and go around killing, that Mm. it will affect everyone in different ways as the dreams do, and that this sort of liberation, this shedding of of human limitations, could, in some circumstances, actually maybe not be a benevolent thing, but be a transformative sure. experience without it being destructive. Yeah, that's something I've considered as well, is that this is, for the people that are the sensitive artist types, maybe this worship or the return of the the old ones, they would be giving new information, new ways of living, new ways of reveling, mm. and maybe that's about some kind of enlightenment or some kind of transformative transhumanism kind of thing where you become something else. You become more like these creatures. Maybe you even learn how to exist in more than four dimensions. You know, like maybe mm-hmm. they'll give you the insight to, oh, this is how one can get past time and space. And it's this way and they'll be able to show us this. And that's the promise of, of Cthulhu that the cultists are grabbing hold of. Maybe. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> now, another thing that the, the human followers have that they can actually get their hands on are these strange idols, which are apparently created in the image of Cthulhu and are used in mm. maybe worship or, or something of, of that nature. And they convey some connection to their, you know, God in inverted commas. And uh, I hope this isn't Spoilers here, but we do see some of these used in the Colts Cthulhu scenarios. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of these idols is described as a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery looking body, prodigious claws on hind and fore feet, and long, narrow wings behind. This thing which seemed indistinct with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of a somewhat bloated corpulence, and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with undecipherable characters. One of the strange things about these idols is how small they are, because it's implied in the story, at least Castro believes, that these things were actually created by the great old ones themselves. Yes, But they're small, even on a human scale. Yeah. So what the hell are these things? Also, why would you wander around with these tiny little representations of yourself that on a human scale would be, what, like the size of a grain of rice or something like that? Why would you have those? It's probably like baggage limit or something like that. I mean, they're traveling around the galaxy. <laughs> you know, you can't transport big shit. Well, I was thinking of them like calling cards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or maybe they're meant to be used internally. Oh. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Take two idols and call me in the morning. Exactly. That may be the way you do things in Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the same thing, that if these were made by the great old ones themselves, that they're awful small because the great old ones are mm. large in all the references that we have of them. But then again, maybe this is a reflection of the perception, the human perception of them. They are, they look large to us because they are powerful. And maybe they aren't literally actually 
a hundred feet tall, or maybe they Hmm. don't even correspond to any kind of size that exists in a physical world. But I've always taken it that the idols were definitely made by humans just because Hmm. sure. Castro thinks that the gods made them, but. And also like Thulu and the great old ones, they're like big bosses of industry. They're going to say, Oh yeah, we made those. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, we had like our minion workers make them. Yeah, yeah, I made that. (laughs) Exactly. They're good, aren't they? You like them? I made those. (laughs) But on the other hand, they seem to be made of some kind of stone that no one can recognize. Yeah. So it could be that the great old ones provide that material. It could even be that they're made of bits of the great old ones themselves. Mm. Maybe this is like Cthulhu's toenail clippings. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I was thinking like some of his essence or his blood or you're like, no, no, toenail clippings. Oh, okay. Makes more sense that way. But what is the purpose of them then? Are they things that the great old ones have deliberately given to humanity or inspired humanity to create as a way of establishing a connection? Or is it just that very human urge to create something to represent the things that we believe to be important? Yeah. I always leaned that way, that it was more of an idea, like it was a fetish or totem. It was something to sort of focus their religious beliefs. Like Many religions across the world have symbols of their faith, and Mm. those things help focus people. If they're feeling scared or frightened or needing a bit of inspiration, they can look upon those things, Mm. and it gives them motivation. And it could just be that simple, but if it's a supernatural Uh, explanation that you're looking for maybe it's a focus of some kind it Mm. enhances the clarity of a message that is being sent from the sleeping god and if you've got one of these idols the visions become more clear or Mm. maybe it's a good uh, conduit for power of some kind or knowledge that you wouldn't get if you didn't have it again these are all just speculations on my Mm. part yeah, I see it almost as being like a psychic Wi-Fi hotspot or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly great things in games because they can be whatever you want them to be. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's also a reference in The Shadow of Innsmouth to Cthulhu. Well, there are a few references to him, but the big one is towards the end where the narrator is coming to terms with his own Deep One ancestry and the changes that are beginning within him. And he has this understanding that the Deep Ones would rise again for the tribute Great Cthulhu craved. That does seem to imply that the Deep Ones have a connection to Cthulhu. Mm. Does that mean, do we think that, like the Starspawn, these entities that Cthulhu apparently birthed or are related to him, that these are also relations of his? Well, does that seem to imply that the Deep Ones uh, could even be completely terrestrial like humans are, but just worship him because they've encountered his dreams the same way as we have? Well, Chris, you wrote about the esoteric order of Dagon in the book. Yeah. Presumably this kind of overlaps with that. It does indeed. Yeah. It's interesting because in Shadow of Innsmouth, there is also references to Shoggoths. And Shoggoths Mm. were the minions of the Elder Things in prehistoric times. The Shoggoths were enslaved by the Elder Things. And there was some revolt at some point that happened in the history. And 
they didn't like the elder things anymore. So maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of situation or the deep ones themselves learned how to enslave the Shoggoths and control them as Mm -hmm. the elder things did before. I try to keep it in the book a little ambiguous as to how the structure of everything is, because I think it's fun for the GM, the the keeper to be able to come up with these things, especially if Mm -hmm. a player reads these books it's not doesn't have the absolute answers to all the questions in there. It, it's just the suggestions, mm. these ideas of how things might be. But they definitely yeah. they worship Dagon specifically and Cthulhu, but they don't really go into what that hierarchy is all about. Or mm. is Dagon maybe uh, an old one, like mm. one of the star spawns of Cthulhu, which is a possibility as well. So that they are somehow a mix of. Cthulhu and humans that have interbred mm. th- through millennia, or they are just terrestrial life forms like humans that have evolved on Earth and they just evolved on completely different lines and now are reconnecting again. And maybe they've evolved due to Cthulhu's influence or Dagon's influence or Mother Hydra or any of these other entities. There's no specifics in any of these. I've yeah. I've combed through them <laughs> looking for, <laughs> for specifics. So it's really up to the keeper to decide how these things are going to work and what's going to click for them and their group. Certainly one argument I can see for presenting the Deep Ones as being descendants of Cthulhu is the fact that they are immortal. Mm. That's something that we don't really tend to see in terrestrial life. Actually, outside of lobsters. <laughs> but yeah, that does seem to perhaps suggest that there is something alien in their makeup. Yeah. Like you say, I mean, I, I like the ambiguity. And I've always liked the fact that Lovecraft is very happy to contradict himself. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think we should do more of that. Yeah. Some people get a little upset about that, you know, and they're headcanon that they want to get everything organized in a certain way. And I know science fiction and fantasy and horror people are typically of a certain mental ilk and we like <laughs> to know how things work and, and how they are structured. And you don't really get that with Lovecraft and mm. all narrators are unreliable. Really. You can't trust that this is the absolute way thing. This is somebody's interpretation of the way things are. And that is fallible. But happily for people who want absolute interpretations of it, we have August Erlith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, August Durleth. (laughs) Yeah, Durleth made far more mentions of Cthulhu than Lovecraft did, name-checking Cthulhu in most of his mythos tales and publishing collections of link tales titled The Mask of Cthulhu and Trail of Cthulhu. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, he even went so far as to coin the term Cthulhu mythos, Mm. which Lovecraft himself never used. Lovecraft, if I remember correctly, referred to his creation as Yogg-Sothothri. Yes. Which I think has got a nice ring to it. But that term Cthulhu mythos then seems to place Cthulhu right at the front and centre. I know Derleth originally wanted to call it the Haster mythos because he fucking loved Haster. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, do, do we think that Cthulhu would be as important if he hadn't just seized upon the name Cthulhu mythos? It's strange to me, yeah, because Cthulhu is sort of a small player in the cosmos of Lovecraft. Mm. We've got the Azazoths and your 
Yogg-Sothoth's, and, and that's why Lovecraft called it Yogg-Sothery, because it was one of the main powerful entities in his cosmology, whereas Cthulhu's, you know, much further down that, that ladder, it seems. I guess Durleth just really liked Cthulhu a lot, or this story. I mean, this is a great story. Call of Cthulhu is one of my favorite Lovecraft mm-hmm. stories. And just the way it's structured, and it's so evocative, and it's so neat. And there's so many ideas in this story that are are different than the others. And I feel like, because this is earlier compared to At the Mountains of Madness and these other things, which seem to kind of extrapolate on this story, I can understand why Durleth would kind of fixate on it and want to build it out. I guess it's also the fact that if we think of the the Cthulhu mythos cycle that Lovecraft wrote, these great foundational stories that then inspired the creation of the rest of the Cthulhu mythos by other writers and Mm. so on, the Call of Cthulhu was really the first one of those. I mean, he'd written plenty of stories before then, some of which have got elements that then get reincorporated into his later work. But this was really the start of him establishing his own myth cycle. Mm. I think good job on Derleth on this, making it Cthulhu mythos, because we see Cthulhu in this story. We witness him. Yeah. He's temporarily defeated. He has a setback. We we learn about his history and potential yeah. future. The other gods, if you like, Yogg-Sothoth, we don't really even witness them. There's, there's reference to no. them in the Dunwich Horror, but we don't really see them. They're not really tangible. Whereas Cthulhu here is a, is a concrete mm-hmm. entity. Yeah, he's not as high up the hierarchy of mythos horrors but he's a one we can kind of identify with because we witness him here and as we said in in shadow of rinsmouth we get reference to him and a whole race of of deep ones and so on that are perhaps related so there's a whole kind of structure to it i think if you put cthulhu at the center there might be other candidates for that role but i think cthulhu is a good one just from a branding standpoint, like you're mm. saying, Lovecraft actually drew Cthulhu. Yeah. He drew a stat. So the iconography of Cthulhu, the imagery that you get is concrete. Yog Sothoth, mm. eh, what is he? There's some kind of vague, but when you say, I mean, we have got that description where, you know, he's got a blubbery body and he's got mm. dragon like wings and he's, he's got the big uh, face full of tentacles and. I can see that. And lots of artists have seen that and been inspired by it and want to play in that world and use that creature. Whereas, unfortunately, Yogg-Sothoth or Asathoth has not inspired people to want to do those things. And it relates to something that we can really relate to, that fear of the ocean, that fear of the deep sea. You know, even if Mm. if that's not a fear for you, you can kind of get your head behind that concept, I think, as a human. Oh, sure. But also, I guess, with Lovecraft, he did write fairly detailed stuff about other gods in his pantheon, but Mm. they're perhaps, like you say, not as visually exciting, because we get a lot of descriptions in the court of Azathoth, particularly in the Dream Quest of Unknown Gadath, Mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily get a great image of what Azathoth himself looks like. And the other one, obviously, we get a lot of descriptions of is Nialathotep, both in Dream Quest and in the story Nialathotep. But, I mean, he just looks like a bloke. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) that's not very exciting. No. No, Cthulhu is different. It's a new monster that people have not seen. It's not... It's not your Draculas, it's not your Frankensteins, it's not your ghosts or zombies. Mm-hmm. It's this crazy thing that's unlike anything before it. Yeah, so of course it's inspiring and, and exciting for people. 
And you can do an elevator pitch of Cthulhu. He's this big kind of humanoid thing under the sea with like tentacle, like octopus head. Bing, you know, that's your pitch. And yeah. you've got it. There's more to him than that, but, you know. <laughs> a lot of the stuff that's additional about him does, however, come from writers like uh, Derlith and Link Carter and Brian Lumley, mm. who have greatly developed Cthulhu over the years. I mean, Derlith was the one who then put in this whole war in heaven aspect into uh, the great old ones and had yeah. them cast down by the older gods and imprisoned and then put in that that weird thing about all the great old ones having elemental associations mm. as well and so you've got cthulhu being this elemental of water which of course is why he's trapped underwater because <laughs> if you're going to combat something made of water you use water to combat i mean it I, doesn't I, make sense it yeah. doesn't. Like I said, in Mountains of Madness, they they landed on Earth and mm. they drove the other things into the sea. Mm. They didn't want anything to do with the sea, Cthulhu and his ilk. Mm. They ended up there. They're imprisoned there now. So I don't know where Durleth is getting this stuff from. I don't know where Durleth got a lot of his stuff from. <laughs> with any of these writers, whether it's Lynn Carter or Durleth or Lumley or Robert E. Howard, they're all a step on from Lovecraft. Hmm. So I think if you want to do anything with Cthulhu, you go back to Lovecraft, look what he did, and that's your starting point. Yeah. And then from that, yeah. there are lots of branches, and you can go and look at those branches and maybe pick up one of those, or you can go to the root and start afresh from there. Hmm. And that's open to all of us. So we can all make a new branch like all these other writers did, and some people like what they hmm. did, some people don't. That's up to them. The same as when we do something with that route that Lovecraft gave us. Some people are going to like what we do and some people won't. Yep. Certainly in the early days of Call of Cthulhu Gaming, there was a tendency to treat the Derbeth stuff as the true canon. And I always think it's worth going back to what Lovecraft originally mentioned, like you say, building on that and taking that in different yeah. directions. Because this whole idea that Derbeth brought in about the good versus evil and then the Lynn Carter stuff where he started building out the extended family and Lumley did a lot of that as well. So Cthulhu now has a wife and a daughter <laughs> and a brother who's really good and has glowing golden eyes. It's like a sitcom now. It really is. Yeah. I mean, sure, you could perhaps do some fun stuff in pulp with that, but it's not really very cosmic or weird or frightening anymore at that stage. No. The whole point of Lovecraft's cosmic view is that it is cold and unforgiving, and Durleth bringing in these benevolent gods totally undermines that whole mm. concept, the horror of it. It becomes like any other religion or human-centric type of belief system or mythology that other people have developed. Lovecraft's cosmology is what made him so interesting, and that's why yeah. everybody is still into Lovecraft after all of these years, because he did this stuff. And August Derleth really tried his best to water it down, and kind of, mm -hmm. in my opinion, totally misses what makes it rad. Yeah. But, you know, he likes the monsters. He likes the tentacles and the wiggly bits and the big scope of it, but he doesn't, he doesn't get it. I think that's what we like about Lovecraft, right? That cosmology and that view of the universe where humans aren't the be-all and end-all. They're just like ants. Nothing important. Yeah, nothing important. A blip in time and space that don't really mean anything. And I think that's something that is interesting with the Call of Cthulhu stories. Those cultists, 
they think they're pretty important mm. in the grand scheme of things. Like, oh, we're going to help out this guy, but yeah, they could have bring Cthulhu back from the dead. Yeah, that's sheer fucking hubris, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that you know this could be me, obviously putting my interpretations on it, but I think that's what Lovecraft intended when he wrote this story. That mm. this isn't necessarily the way things are. This is what these humans think. This is mm. like, well, I'm a cultist. I'm going to get all this great stuff, and Cthulhu loves me. You know, if I do all this great stuff, he's going to love me. He's going to give me favors, and it's like, no. Cthulhu does not care. <laughs> he does not care about any of these things. The whole cult is just based off of his dreams. His He's not even consciously doing or One can assume that he's not even consciously trying to affect humans at all. He just happens to. And these cults come up around it. It's almost like a um, cargo cult. That's what it is. Where something happens that wasn't even intended and it has these repercussions hmm. where people think that God did this or, or something happened. Like, no, no, no. We didn't. We weren't trying to tell you anything. We just dropped a, a bottle out of an airplane. You know, that mm. it had nothing to do with it. So I think that's in this story. I think it's in the Call of Cthulhu story mm. that, oh, yeah. that these cultists aren't correct necessarily about how things are going to play. This is just what they think. Now let's take a look at Cthulhu in Call of Cthulhu. Yes. <laughs> well, of course, looking at Cthulhu's stats, you know, for the stats in the Call of Cthulhu book for the various gods, we get massive size stat and power stat and all those things. But the one important entry that has been there for a long time is Cthulhu has a scoop maneuver for an attack <laughs> whereby he can grab and eat 1d3 investigators per round. I mean, that's the best attack of all time, isn't it? It, it really is. <laughs> what more do you need? That's intended to be funny, right? I think so. It's always the intent behind it, yeah. Because you don't really need to randomize how many investigators are, are eaten by Cthulhu. Or do you? Don't you be cheating me. <laughs> or are you rolling that D3? You've got a, a group of four players. You know, you go, oh yeah, Cthulhu, he just eats three of you and you're like no no roll the die <laughs> let's find out how many of us he's going to eat that's the rules although in malleus monstrorum i feel there may be some kind of religious schism because it upgrades it to 1d4 investigators oh round. oh my gosh i'd always had it in my head that it was 1d6 oh uh, i misremembered yeah. oh my gosh what maybe it's seventh ed maybe it's an edition version which one are you exciting yeah. paul Seventh head. <laughs> Seventh head. Anyway, the Malleus Monstrorum <laughs> expands Cthulhu's entry, including much of what we've discussed. Yes. And it also discusses the Deathless Masters who head up the Cthulhu cult. Yeah. There's some expansion on the Deathless Masters in the Cult of Cthulhu book as well. That Mike Mason did most of that himself. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about this Cults of Cthulhu book by Chris Lackey and Mike Mason. And friends. And friends. Good friends. Good friends. And i got to say, I mean, I've only seen the PDF, but I think this is a step up in terms of production and the look of the books because mm. Chaosium has been putting out some good stuff, but this one looks absolutely fantastic. The artwork, the layout, and so on. Never mind the yeah. writing. I mean, just the visual yeah. look of it is fantastic. It's really exciting to see, you know, you work on something for a long time. This is a couple of years in the making getting this book done yeah and the rest yeah before any artwork 
or anything happened. And to see illustrations based on the stuff that you wrote, it's just like, that's exactly how I saw it. That's amazing. The characters that you've come up with or you've written and, and these artists interpret this stuff or they interpret in ways that are even cooler than what you originally mm-hmm. had thought, which is exciting. It's like, oh, 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 yeah, that's that's great. Am I right? I'm remembering that John Summer is one of the artists on this. Yeah, yeah. John's got some work in here. Yeah, definitely. Oh, nice. Mm. So it starts off with a history of the Cthulhu cult or indeed Cthulhu cults. Who is Mildred Schwartz? 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 Mildred Schwartz is a woman who found the angel box after Thurston was killed by the cultists. You know, that's implied mm. at the end of the book that, you know, they're coming to get me soon. But that angel box still existed. And she worked at the clipping agency that he was at or that, that he subscribed to. And he put it there, gave it over to those guys to hold it for him. And then he was dying. So the cultists lost track of it. She found it and understood that he disappeared, was killed And so she, on the DL, started doing her own research into the Cthulhu mythos. And that's this chapter, or at least the first part of this chapter, is her going back through history, trying to find any references to Cthulhu or Cthulhu cults. And uh, these are pretty much fictionalized. There's a few Lovecraft things. Everything that Lovecraft wrote is in there that I could find. But there's a bunch of other fun fictional things that are hopefully jumping off points for adventures or stories for keepers trying to run their own scenarios. So with some of those historic events and cults that weren't detailed by Lovecraft or you know mentioned by Lovecraft, were those things that you made up whole cloth or are those things that you you know you were doing research and you found sort of seeds that you thought you could expand on? Or how did you sort of go about doing those? A little bit of both. I looked through history and found interesting things that I thought, well, maybe we can twist this a little bit and make this about Cthulhu or make it about a cult or make it about the old ones. Later on, there's more modern Cthulhu cults. Mm. That's another character. David Eberhardt is the one that finds uh, Ms. Schultz's work. He finds her papers that she did, and then he starts looking back. I think she died in the the 1950s or something like that. So everything after the 1950s, he starts to go back and do some research on. And so we get more of the modern stuff. And that I based on either some pulp magazines or there is uh, the Church of the Perfect Science, which was kind of a Scientology sort of take. There is a a progressive rock band, a la Fish, (laughs) that kind of uh, is a bit of a Cthulhu worshiping thing. I don't want to get too into real cults because cults are pretty horrific in the things that cults, real cults mm-hmm. in, in the modern world have done. So I try to shy away from doing parallels to those specific cults, you know, like or Jim Jones types of things, or even though I did do one that was sort of Jim Jonesy, but I try to make it different enough that it, it's not going to trigger anybody really. I don't want to, to upset people. This mm. is supposed to be entertainment and it's supposed to be fun and inspiring for keepers to write their own stories. Yeah, no, I think you did a great job. When we're going through history, we get things from Rome in 60 AD. We get Japan in 781, Fiji 1643, the Norfolk Coven in 1645 with Matthew Hopkins. So we get various ones sort of through history that give us a picture of how Cthulhu has perhaps influenced mankind over the centuries. 
Mm -hmm. Then we get some that tie into the canonical Call of Cthulhu periods. So we got Gaslight with the elevated order of Morpheus. And then slightly later, we get the Louisiana Swamp Cult. We get classic 1920s. We got the Society of the Angelic Ones and the Esoteric Order of Dagon. And then, as you mentioned, all the way up to the modern day, when we get the Church of Perfect Science. And the idea with the Church of Perfect Science that I was really keen on was taking that stuff that Castro Mm. took, those ideas about an elevation, an evolution of humanity, that you'll Mm. know it's going to be time when Cthulhu comes back because humans will be like the old ones. So what does that mean, they'll be like the old ones? Will they be like them in behavior? Will they be like them in their moral perceptions? Or will they be like them in their understanding of the universe and how things work? Will they be at an intellectual point? And I thought that this cult, the Church of the True Science, was kind of taking that as a more literal, they're transhumanists. They want to make themselves into something else to be like the old ones. And once they are like that, then that's when this, transformation is going to happen to all of humanity yeah and we see those in the third scenario right in the modern day yes yeah and we've got scenarios that tie in with each of those so we've got loki's gift in gaslight angel thirst in the 20s and god's dream in the modern day and they're kind of linked scenarios not integrally linked but there's a link that flows through them and i think albeit they're three different periods i think they'd make a great almost like a campaign kind of but not mm. with the same player characters obviously no but they'd be great to play in a sequence we wanted to try and show the different types also the different types of cults that you can have a big section of the book is about making your own cult and that's really good that's one of the things i was really excited about is to really help people come up with a cult that is a living, breathing thing. If you sit down and you go through this Cthulhu cult worksheet, basically, yeah. you know, there's some random tables that you can roll on to generate some things. But I, I stress too on there that these tables are just to kind of give you some ideas. So if you roll something and it doesn't fit with what you're doing, just re-roll or pick something else or, or do whatever. There's three examples of three different cults in the book following through the procedure of building your own cult, thinking about how they get resources, how they recruit people. What is it they actually do? Mm. Are they sacrificing people? Are they collecting artifacts? Are they trying to gain superpowers or spells? Or is there a leader that is out for themselves? Or is there a leader that's truly has faith in the cult and Cthulhu? There's so many different things you can do. And by building out one of these cults, yourself that's a campaign yeah and once you figure out how that cult works and what it is that they're doing then you can go well okay on thursdays they have a meeting every thursday down at the docks well what happens if the police see this happen and then that the police are killed and nobody knows who killed the police and now you've got an adventure or maybe they're after an artifact and one of your investigators uncles has that artifact he's killed and Now you're into the cult. You've got an entryway. And anytime these cults are active, they're going to be affecting the real world. They're going to be either taking lives or treasure or money or resources and trying to influence people. That gives you an opportunity as a keeper to get investigators involved and have them as antagonists. And I think cultists are great antagonists because they are us. They're people. They have human desires and wants and needs, and 
subverting the natural wants and needs of people with these kind of alien or strange needs is a specific kind of horror that you don't get from, you know, just fighting Migos or, yeah. or whatever. Because they're so different. They're so different than us. It, it's scary in its own way, but there's something that's about cults and about humans and human behavior that can really strike a chord that other creatures can't. One last question to wrap up this discussion. Yeah. What, in your opinion, makes Cthulhu scary? Wow. Hmm. I think it's the implication purely that he exists, that there's a thing out there, a very powerful thing that works in ways that I can never understand and doesn't care not only about me, it doesn't care about my people, my civilization, mm. my history, all of that stuff is irrelevant to it and its machinations. And I can never hope to understand it or stop it or have any control over it whatsoever. And that thought, that idea also makes one look at their own life and how societies, you know, in a civilization, you have very little control as one person. There's not much you can do. And you start thinking about your own insignificance in the world and how you're just sort of mm. going with the flow and things happen uh, and you're at the mercy of the universe. And that's what Cthulhu makes me think about. And that's why I think that all of Lovecraft stuff, Cthulhu's just a got a good face you know he's he's got a big tentacle mont uh, octopus head he's mm -hmm. rad that way he's the front man exactly he's the front man but <laughs> what his existence implies is what is really horrific about yeah. cthulhu for me thank you. Thank you. you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links we have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to everyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people whose dreams we would like to fill with warm, fuzzy feelings and thanks. Yep, starting off with a big thanks to Mark Story. And thank you very much to Oscar Agnesen. And thanks to Alina. Is that the Alina we know from the club? I think it might be. Thank you very much as well to Tiffany Funk. And thanks to Syzygy. And thank you finally to Tim Collins. And of course, thank you to Christopher Lackey for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I love talking about Cthulhu and you guys are great guys to talk to Cthulhu, talk with about Cthulhu too. I've lost my mind. Okay, good. <laughs> you can also talk to Cthulhu about us. We don't mind. <laughs> Chris, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners about or tell them where they can find you or, you know, your, your multitudinous works? We are at hppodcraft.com, but we are going through a change right now. And eventually we're going to be at strangestudies.com. And that's going to be our new show, which is pretty much like the old show, just covering more science fiction, more fantasy and other non-weird horror. Well, should we leave the listeners with a verse of 
Kanaloa <laughs> Rising's 1992 <laughs> album. I mean, as everybody will know, the, um, oh, yeah. the prog psychedelic fusion jazz rock band formed in 1979. <laughs> yeah. Their fans known as Risers. <laughs> Do you want to read that final verse there, Chris? You sure, you bet. I, I don't even have to read it. I know it by heart. Wow. Of course you do. Kanaloa is not dead. He only sleeps. He dreams in his city. He wants to give us freedom from the bonds we gave ourselves. That is deep, man. <laughs> Those are always the worst bonds. <laughs> well, until Cthulhu rises, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. A goodbye from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.